Take your Bibles and turn to Galatians chapter 5. Galatians chapter 5. And we continue through our, our study through this letter that Paul wrote to the churches of Galatia. And prayerfully, you have a good, solid understanding of the reason for which Paul wrote this letter and the issues that were addressed, and namely uh, that the gospel is uh, what saves and the gospel or salvation comes uh, by grace through faith in Christ alone, apart from works. And the churches of Galatia were being confused and deceived by the Judaizers and going into a form of legalism, a works-based uh, belief system so that they could be pleasing to God. And that was really the bottom line for it. And, and Paul wrote very sternly and said that, that anybody who preaches a gospel that's a different gospel uh, should be accursed. Let him be accursed. And so Paul was very protective of the gospel and even of the ministry that God gave him to preach the gospel of Jesus Christ. And so we walked our way through all of this. In chapter 1 and chapter 2, Paul defends his ministry because the Judaizers were accusing him, uh, falsely accusing him of just trying to get a following for himself. And he defended his ministry. Not only did he defend that, saying that it's not of men, it was given to me of God, but the message that I preach was also given to me of God, and it was not of men. And so those are the, the main thoughts or the thrust of chapter 1 and 2. You get to chapter 3 and 4, and Paul really moves into the doctrinal elements of, of Galatians, where he is proving again and again that salvation is by grace through faith in Christ alone, apart from works. The law is dead. Christ came ended the law. The law could never give life. It never was intended to give life. The only thing the law could do was to magnify or show what man's sin is and drive us to the one who could take our sin away. And so doctrinally, uh, in chapter 3 and 4, Paul uh, proves that point over and over again and, and basically says to the Galatian believers, you're, you're like those who've, who've gained freedom and come of age, and then you're choosing to go back into slavery and into bondage again. That's what the law is. It only enslaves and puts one in bondage. And, and also, you could never possibly keep the law in the first place. And so you'll never be able to please God. And, and so that's chapter 3 and 4. Now we come to chapter 5 and chapter 6. And this is where Paul gets to the practical side of the issues. It's not just enough to know that salvation is by grace through faith, but God wants us to experience that in our Christian life. And salvation changes a person. And God's grace works and enables a person through the Spirit of God to, to transform a life and to turn us into the image of Jesus Christ. And this is the practical side of things. And this is where we'll spend a good majority of, of time over these next two chapters. I mean, we're, we're only two chapters left, but we're going to be here for a little while in these two chapters. And, and, and they're, they're full of good truth, practical truth for the Christian life. And there's some hard things in here as well that we'll talk about 
as we go through these chapters, but there's also some wonderful, it's all wonderful truth, but there's some wonderful truth when you boil it down that, that it's not up to us, it's the grace of God through the Spirit of God that produces it in us. And so I'm encouraged about where our study is going to go. Tonight, though, our, our text verses are verses 1 through 6 of Galatians chapter 5. And Paul says, Stand fast, therefore, in the liberty wherewith Christ hath made us free, and be not entangled again with the yoke of bondage. Behold, I, Paul, say unto you that if ye be circumcised, Christ shall profit you nothing. For I testify again to every man that is circumcised that he is a debtor to do the whole law. Christ has become of no effect unto you. Whosoever of you, are, or whosoever of you are justified by the law, ye are fallen from grace. For we through the Spirit wait for the hope of righteousness by faith. For in Jesus Christ neither circumcision availeth anything nor uncircumcision, but faith which worketh by love. Uh, most of you in this room would know, at least you've heard of it, or would know something about the American Revolution. And one of the more famous things about the American Revolution was Patrick Henry's famous words, give me liberty or give me death. You've heard those words before. Uh, the essence of that is that he would rather have died than to give up his civil liberties. And he took a stand for liberty, believing with all of his heart that death would be better than living under the bondage of British rule. And we say that's a notable thing. And yet there's a liberty that is far more important than political liberty, and that is the liberty of the soul. Liberty of the heart, liberty of the mind and the conscience and the spirit and the will from the bondage of law and works keeping and sin and death and hell and all that, that sin brings with it. That's what the Apostle Paul is talking about in this section. This freedom, this liberty in Jesus Christ that comes by the grace of God. Chapter 5 and chapter 6 of Galatians deals with grace and sanctification or Christian living. And again, like I said, it's not enough just to know the doctrine of grace, but it's got to be experienced in a person's life if they're truly born again. And so Paul turns from argument to application. And what I mean by that is from proving doctrinally that salvation is by grace, the argument of that, uh, refuting uh, the, the legalism and the, uh, and the Judaizers' uh, teaching and, and religion, to practical application. He moves from the doctrinal side to the practical side of the Christian life. The legalistic teaching of the Judaizers had so penetrated the thinking of these Galatians that it was beginning to affect the way that they lived. Remember how Paul said, there was a time when you would do anything for me. There was a time when you loved me. You would have even plucked out your own eyes and given it to me. But now, it seems like we're enemies or you're my enemy simply because I'm telling you the truth. Something had changed and it had affected the way that they were living their lives. And these Galatians, instead of trusting in the indwelling Spirit of God to produce God's righteousness in them, they were going about to establish 
their own righteousness through depending on self-efforts through keeping the law of Moses, and somehow that was going to make them more spiritual and more pleasing to God. Well, what we're going to talk about is that the power for living the Christian life is not found in law-keeping. It's not found in keeping the Mosaic law or other man-made laws, but in the Holy Spirit of God. And the Galatians were exhorted to yield themselves and put themselves under the Spirit's control. And that's where we're going to go to the practical side of things. But we'll look at a few things out of these verses here tonight. Let's pray and then we'll begin. Lord, I ask that you give us grace tonight and help and encourage us through the Word of God, we pray in Jesus' name. Amen. First thing I want you to notice is here is the exhortation to liberty in verse 1. The exhortation to liberty. Notice how Paul says, Stand fast, therefore, in the liberty wherewith Christ hath made us free, and be not entangled again with the yoke of bondage. Paul says and gives them this exhortation to stand fast or stand firm in the Christian liberty that they have, which came to them by the grace of God. Now, in context, again, it's not civil or political liberties or freedoms that Paul is talking about, but he's talking about spiritual liberty, spiritual freedom, freedom from the Mosaic law, freedom from good works as a means of gaining acceptance with God. Christ, in His death, has set the Christian free from the law. Amen? To live a life that is free by the grace of God, apart from the bondage of law-keeping. And remember how Paul had said the Mosaic Law, it was temporary until Christ would come. And then he would bring in a better way, a higher way of life. That new way of life was the law of Christ that was put into operation by the Spirit of God. And so Paul is trying to remind them again of the liberty they have in Christ. And once we've been saved by the grace of God... It doesn't stop there. Our life is to continue on in grace, like 2 Peter 3 and verse 18, but grow in the grace and the knowledge of our Lord and Savior Jesus Christ. And so Paul says, don't fall back. Don't go back into bondage. Stand firm. Hold firm. Don't retreat. Don't give up an inch of your liberty in Christ. And then he says at the second part of verse 1, be not entangled again with the yoke of bondage. By going back under the law, the Galatians would have been ensnared by the law and become a slave to it. They wouldn't be any better off than when they were slaves to sin and works in their pagan religions before their conversion to Christ. And Paul is saying, don't be entangled again. You're leaving one bondage just to go into another bondage. The law... And law-keeping puts a man in a straitjacket, cramping his experience in Christ and hindering his actions and keeping him from being able to experience being led by the empowering Spirit of God in his life. And these Galatians, they had been saved by grace. They had experienced the Christian life and the Spirit, but now they're going back under the law for either salvation or sanctification as a means of being pleasing to God. And the application that I would make from that 
Because, you know, people say, we would say, well, we don't believe that. We don't believe that we're saved by the law or law keeping or works or anything like that. But let me just say this to you. Once a Christian gets into any kind of legalistic system, it's very hard to get out. Legalism is adding to salvation or adding to spirituality, which the Bible tells us is something that is purely by grace through faith in Christ. Legalism is adding to that anything in order for us to, find, or to be pleasing to God in some way. Legalism brings pride into the heart and often frustration there's one preacher who tells this story. He says, I've been traveling for more than 28 years in evangelistic work. I've been in churches that are supposed to be fundamental Bible churches. But beloved, the poor members in those churches are under law. They are bound to a little group of selfish, self-centered people who shout long and loud about the grace of God and then submit to the commands or the demands of someone else or the fellowship to which they belong. Some Christians shout, independent, unaffiliated, fundamental, Baptist. But when you dig below the surface, you find that they are not independent at all. They have a machine of their own, and the minister dictates to and commands the members. According to the New Testament, born-again believers are led by the Holy Spirit of God, not the preacher in the pulpit or a couple of families in the church. The preacher is the overseer and the leader, but he's not to, to command. He's to lead, not to lord over God's heritage. He's to be an example to the flock. Every true minister is, under, is an under-shepherd of the Lord. What a, what a great statement. What a great thought. Because practically speaking, that happens so often. We can shout long and hard about the grace of God and so on. And yet there's a, a small group of selfish, self-centered people who basically run the show or control everything. That's not the biblical pattern in the New Testament. Jesus Christ is to have the preeminence. Amen. The Holy Spirit of God is to administrate all of those things. And, and any kind of legalism or legalistic system is very hard to get away from. And Paul says, don't give up an inch of your liberty in Jesus Christ. And then we find in verses 2 through 4, Paul gives this warning against legalism. Look at verse 2. Behold, I, Paul, say unto you that if ye be circumcised, Christ shall profit you nothing. For I testify again to every man that is circumcised, that he is a debtor to do the whole law. Christ is become of no effect unto you. Whosoever of you are justified by the law, ye are fallen from grace. Here's Paul's warning against legalism. And, and note the, what Paul says in verse 2, Behold, I, Paul, say unto you, and it's, it's almost as if Paul is saying, Listen up. Mark my words, I'm telling you that if you let yourself be circumcised in this context, Christ will be of no value to you at all. These Galatians had received Christ, but they were thinking about or reverting back to 
being under the law to gain approval of God. That's what the Judaizers were telling them. You'll be more spiritual and you'll be extra pleasing to God if you live by the law. And you have to believe in Jesus Christ, but you also have to be circumcised and keep the law in order to be saved and to please God. They felt they could not have the blessing of God unless they permitted themselves to be circumcised and follow after the keeping of the law. Maybe some of them felt that they couldn't even be saved without that circumcision. And I really think that's what the bottom line was, because that is exactly what the Judaizers were teaching. And we can look back in Acts chapter 15. Go over there. Acts chapter 15. And look at verse 1. And certain men which came down from Judea taught the brethren and said, Except ye be circumcised after the manner of Moses, ye cannot be saved. Now look at verse 5. But there arose up certain of the sect of the Pharisees which believed, saying that it was needful to circumcise them and to command them to keep the law of Moses. Verse 10, Now therefore why tempt ye God to put a yoke upon the neck of the disciples, which neither our fathers nor we were able to bear? But we believe that through the grace of the Lord Jesus Christ, we shall be saved even as they. See exactly what the Judaizers were teaching? Except you be circumcised, you can't be saved. But Christ in his death delivered them from the law, and to go back under the law would place them in a position where the benefits of Christ's death and the power of his resurrection would be of no advantage to them. And here's what I mean by that. By going back under the law to, in order to please God, these Christians were depriving themselves of the ministry and the enabling of the Holy Spirit of God in their life, which was made possible through the death and resurrection of Jesus Christ. What is it that enables us to live above sin and over the power of sin? It's certainly not self-determination and self-will and effort. We, all of us know that we can't possibly be perfect in keeping the law of God. No one can. But that's what they were trying to do. And they were depriving themselves of the ministry and the empowering of the Holy Spirit of God. Now look at verse 3. Verse 3, For I testify again to every man that is circumcised, that he is a debtor to do the whole law. Paul says here, if a Christian goes back under the law, then he must accept the responsibility of the whole law. All the Mosaic law must be kept in every detail, in every way, perfectly, all the time. Well... If the Christian submits to circumcision, then he must also keep the Sabbath with all of its prohibitions as set forth in the law. All 600 and some odd laws that they had come up with had to be kept perfectly all the time. All the social, all the moral, all the ceremonial, all the religious aspects of the law 
had to be kept also. Either all the law of Moses is binding or none of it is. And that's what Paul is saying here. And, and he says, if you, I'm telling you that you're going to remove yourself from the grace of God. You're going to remove yourself from the ministry of the power of the Spirit of God. Christ has become of none effect to you if you go back and try to put yourself under the law. He says, you're a debtor to do the whole thing. All of it in every way. But what the legalist and the Pharisee likes to do is this. They like to isolate parts of the law that they like to use while overlooking the rest of it. The part that makes them feel good and the part that makes them look good and the part that makes them look spiritual, they like to do while overlooking the rest of it. In essence, it's something like this. They come down really hard on morality issues, but completely overlook the slandering tongue and the critical spirit that is in their heart. Furthermore, those who desire to put themselves under the law must not only do the whole law, but they must do it perfectly if they will ever please God. That's why James says in James 2 and verse 10, For whosoever shall keep the whole law and yet offend in one point, he's guilty of all. The law is like a window pane. If one section of the pane is broken, the whole window is broken. So to break one point of the law is to break the whole law. And to keep one point of the law, uh, one must keep all the law. Galatians 3.10, Paul already said this, For as many as are of the works of the law are under the curse. For it is written, Cursed is everyone that continueth not in all things which are written in the book of the law to do them. Paul's saying, you don't have a chance in the flesh and if you go back and you allow yourself into this legalistic system, Christ has become none effect, of none effect to you and His power. Now look at verse 4, where he says, Christ has become of no effect unto you. Whosoever of you are that are justified by the law, ye are fallen from grace. An attitude of self-effort by law-keeping alienates the believer from Christ. He says, you've fallen from grace. Now, don't be confused by that statement as if Paul is saying you've lost your salvation. That's not what he's saying. They had not lost their salvation, but they've gone away from the teaching of grace for salvation and sanctification. The word fallen in that text means to lose one's hold on. In other words, it tells us that these saved people had lost their grasp upon grace for daily living by the power of the Holy Spirit of God. Now, if a person seeks to be justified or sanctified by doing or keeping certain things in order to please God, he's abandoned the principles of grace. Grace and works cannot mix together. He's operating outside of the sphere of grace, which is divine enabling for daily living as a Christian. Now, a more common form of legalism in some Christian circles is to think that some man-made do's and don'ts are what is necessary for spirituality. 
And everyone's judged by our own standard of what that is. Does that make sense? I've got this level of spirituality, and if you don't comply or you don't follow to that degree, well then, you're not as spiritual or you're not spiritually minded. Listen, listen. Bottom line, the legalist, whether it's a saved person or an unsaved legalist, they're miserable miserable people. And the reason is because they're filled with pride and they have a critical attitude about any and everything that they do not like. They want everyone to conform to their picky way of thinking and they cloak it all in being spiritually minded. No. No. That's why it's so important for the Christian to remember that his salvation, it began with grace, it continues in grace, and we are to grow in the grace and knowledge of Jesus Christ. Now look at verses 5 and 6. And thirdly, we see a, excuse me, a, new, <coughs> a new way of life. Look at verse 5. <clears throat> for we... Through the Spirit, wait for the hope of righteousness by faith. For in Jesus Christ, neither circumcision availeth anything, nor uncircumcision, but faith which worketh by love. And in, in this verse here, in verse 5, For we through the Spirit wait for the hope of righteousness by faith. In this verse, Paul gives the first mention of this new kind of life that the Christian is to live. It's not a life that's lived by law, but a life that's lived by faith and through the Holy Spirit. That's the life of liberty in Jesus Christ. Now, the righteousness that is talked about here, for we through the Spirit wait for the hope of righteousness by faith. This righteousness in this context, refers to the experiential righteousness in one's life that comes after conversion to Jesus Christ. In other words, sanctification, being conformed to the image of Jesus Christ, that kind of righteousness. This is the practical righteousness that one should confidently expect. That word hope, confident expectation. Okay, so this is the practical righteous, righteousness that one should confidently expect as he is dependent upon the Holy Spirit of God in his daily life. So in other words, I'm a born-again believer. I have the Holy Spirit of God. I'm not trusting in my works or my self-determination. I'm a new creature in Jesus Christ. I'm supposed to be conformed into the image of His Son. I would expect that the Holy Spirit of God would begin to produce that inside of me. That's the practical righteousness that we would expect as a new believer. And so Paul says, we through the Spirit wait for the hope of righteousness by faith. It's not me that's doing it, it's the Spirit of God that is doing it, and I expect Him to do it. The true believer is desirous of the righteousness of Christ to flow from his life. Every Christian should have an intense desire for and an eager expectation of this practical righteousness which will be produced in his life as he yields to the Holy Spirit of God in his daily life. Because it's not about me keeping some laws or rules or standards 
to please God. No, it's about yielding to the Holy Spirit of God and Him producing the righteousness of Christ in me. This, then, answers this accusation and this teaching. Maybe you've heard of this, where people say, well, you, you teach grace or you believe in grace. Doesn't that give a license to sin? Haven't you, have you heard of that? It produces loose living because you're under grace, so it just gives a license to sin. You can do whatever you want to do. You've heard that accusation before? This truth answers that accusation that grace produces loose living. No, it doesn't. Not if the true child of God has the Spirit of God indwelling him, in him. He has a desire for righteousness to be produced in him, but not of his own. It also answers the question of the opposite extreme, which is, I can live however I want because I'm under grace. Listen, the Christian has a new restrainer in his life. He also has a new power source in his life. It's not the law. It's not self-determination. He has the Holy Spirit in him who is at work to produce righteousness, the righteousness of God in him. The law could only provide these external do's and don'ts, but the Holy Spirit works in the Christian to produce internal righteousness. Amen? Now look at verse 6. He says, For in Jesus Christ neither circumcision availeth anything, nor uncircumcision, but faith which worketh by love. There is no strength or power in circumcision or uncircumcision. That's what Paul is saying. When you're in Christ, um, those avail nothing. The power is in God who loves and gives us the power to exercise faith through the Holy Spirit. The love that Paul is talking about here does not refer to man's love. It would be making faith the result of man's love. Faith is the result of God's love, and this faith works because God is the one who's behind it. The doctrine of grace does not cause a person to be indifferent about Christianity or the way that he lives resulting in low morals or low ethics. No, no, that's not what it's about at all. The Holy Spirit is working inside every Christian to produce holiness in his life. And that's why Philippians 2 and verse 12 says, Work out your own salvation with fear and trembling, for it is God which worketh in you both to will and to do of his good pleasure. In other words, he's saying, Uh, Your salvation, work out your own salvation with fear and trembling. That's not self-effort. No, it's it's verification or proving from the inside out that you're a born-again believer because your life is changed, and God is the one who's working in you to produce that that comes on the outside. The Christian does not work in order to be saved or to keep himself saved, but his life will produce good works. Amen? By faith... Because he is saved, true faith actually works. The true Christian will prove with his life he is saved, but the power to exercise faith comes from God himself, for he is working in the life of every Christian through the Spirit. And that's what Paul is going to 
show in the end of chapter 5, he's going he's gonna to show what that actually looks like when the Spirit of God is working in someone's life to produce righteousness in him. What does that actually look like? Well, he talks about that at the end of chapter 5, and that'll be a good study because we say a lot of things about uh, Christianity, our own Christianity, our own faith. We think a lot of things about how spiritual we are. I'm spiritually minded. And yet, if we line our life up and the things in our life compared with what the Spirit of God actually produces in a person's life, there might be some real discrepancies there that show us we're not as spiritual as we think we are. We might be depending a little too much on the flesh and the power of the flesh when we need to be yielding more to the Spirit of God. Works are not the cause of our salvation, but they are the result of it. Amen? The Spirit producing fruit and good works is verification of genuine salvation. That's what James talks about in James 2. We're about done here, so just stay with me. <clears throat> James chapter 2. The Spirit producing fruit and good works in our life is verification of genuine salvation. James 2, in verse 14, What doth it profit, my brethren, though a man say he hath faith and have not works? Can faith save him? He's like, oh, I've got faith. Oh, I've got faith. It's a lot of words. Oh, I've got faith. But there's nothing that verifies that. There's no works. Can your statement that you have faith, can that save you? Verse 15, If a brother or sister be naked and destitute of daily food... And one of you say unto them, Depart in peace, and be ye warmed and filled. Notwithstanding, ye give them not those things which are needful to the body. What doth the profit? Your words are empty words, is what he's saying. you got the ability to help, and you see that there's a need, but you don't. You're like, be you warmed and filled, but you don't actually do something with it. All of your words are empty and vain. Just like you saying, I've got faith. Right? Verse 17, if so, even so, faith, if it hath not works, is dead, being alone. Yea, a man may say, thou hast faith, and I have works. Show me thy faith without thy works, and I will show thee my faith by my works. My works is going to prove what, what I say. What comes out of my life that God produces is going to verify that I'm actually a born-again believer. Not just empty words. Conversion is proved. And so, Paul says to these Galatian believers, he says, Stand fast, therefore, in the liberty wherewith Christ hath made us free. Don't give up an inch of your liberty in Christ. Don't be entangled again in bondage. You are free in Christ because of the grace of God in your life. I'll just close with this story. Many years ago, there was a very famous Scottish preacher named Brownlow North who was highly esteemed and seemed like a man who had it all together. But no one understood better than North that he was a child of grace, God's grace. In his younger days, it is said that he was a ladies' man, 
handsome, rich, a good dancer, an excellent horseman. He proposed to 19 women and all said yes, only to have their hearts broken by this debonair man. Brownlow came from a Christian home. He had a mother who taught him biblical truths and prayed for him. But vanity caused him to turn from Christ and to seek a debauched life of drinking, gambling, and women. He finally married, and after the death of his son, he became conscious of God and his sins, and he decided he would become a clergyman in the Church of England, though he was not saved. When the bishop learned of Brownlow's sinful past, he refused his ordination. North was bitterly disappointed, and he returned to his sinful lifestyle with a vengeance. He also mocked anything or anyone who was a Christian. At 44 years old, his body was racked with such violent pain, he was sure he was going to die. And Mr. North gives an account of his own salvation. He says, Dropping his cigar, he gasped to his son, I'm a dead man. Take me upstairs. They helped him to his room and he threw himself on his bed. My first thought then was, Now, what will my 44 years of following the vices of my own heart profit me? In a few minutes, I shall be in hell. At that moment, I felt constrained to pray, but it was merely the prayer of a coward, a cry for mercy. I was not sorry for what I had done, but I was afraid of the punishment of my sin. The housemaid hurried to light the fire while her master lay groaning on the bed. Unwittingly, she had a part to play in that night's work, though I did not believe it at the first, continues North on his account. He said that I had ten minutes to live, I was sure, and knew that there was no possible hope for me but in the mercy of God, and that if I did not seek that mercy, I could not expect to have it. Yet such was the nature of my heart that it was a balance with me, a thing to turn this way or that. I could not tell how, whether I should wait till the woman left the room or whether I should fall on my knees immediately and cry for mercy in her presence. The girl struck a match. The fire blazed up. At that moment, she heard a movement behind her and turned around. To her astonishment, her pagan master was on his knees and praying aloud. I believe it was a turning point with me, said North in years after. I believe that if I had not responded to the Holy Spirit of God, if I had resisted Him one more time, it would have been one time too often. The next day, he told his guests that he had given his heart to Christ. He seemed as if he had just risen from a long illness and very gentle and subdued in his manner. Family prayers were instituted forthwith, and his dissolute friends were informed that I am, I trust, by the grace of God, a changed man. His aged mother, when he went to see her, said, Brownlow, God is not only able to save you, but to make you more conspicuous for good than you ever were for evil. The past now caught up with him. Weary weeks and months of spiritual conflict assailed him. Temptations, doubts to his salvation, the suspicion of those who might have helped out but doubted his sincerity. Cravings for alcohol, which he had abjured. All this put him through the fire. He read nothing but the Bible. His wife would hear him groaning aloud and find him rolling on the carpet, agonizing in prayer. He would listen greedily to the exposition of scriptures. Brownlow wrestled 
with the assurance of his salvation. But after six months, he began an intense study of the book of Romans. After he had finished studying the book of Romans, he stated for the first time he truly understood the grace of God and was assured of his salvation in Christ. Sometime later, Brownlow North was asked to fill pulpits in Scotland, and he became one of the most popular preachers in the land. People who never went to church would flock to hear him preach, and many were saved. Brownlow tells him an experience in his life that caused him to stand fast, to hold firmly to the grace of God in salvation. One night, as North was about to enter the pulpit in a highland town, a man handed him a letter asking him to read it before he would preach. The letter, as he read, reminded him in no uncertain terms of some of the more repulsive excesses of his past life before Jesus Christ. At the end of the letter, these were the words, How dare you pray and speak to the people this evening when you are such a vile sinner? Northland mounted the pulpit and the service began. At sermon time, he announced his text. He looked down at the sea of expectant faces and he read out loud that very letter. The hush was intense. He spoke again. All that is here said is true. It is a correct picture of the degraded sinner I once was. And oh, how wonderful must the grace of God be that could raise me up from such a death in trespasses and sins and make me what I am before you tonight, nothing but a vessel of mercy, one who knows that all his past sins have been cleansed away through the atoning blood of the Lamb of God. It is of His redeeming love that I now have to tell you. I'll tell you what I am, He would say. I'm a man who's been at the brink of the bottomless pit and has looked in. And as I see many of you going down that same road in that same pit, I'm here to hold you back and to warn you of your danger. I'm here as the chiefest of sinners, saved by the grace of God, to tell you that the grace which has saved me can surely save you. And the point is, it's all of grace. Even in your life, it's all of grace. When the devil says to you, You've been too sinful in your past to speak out for Christ. How dare you? Remember, it's the righteousness of Christ that God sees, not your sinful past. By the grace of God, you belong to Christ. You ought to speak for Him. When you failed in your flesh, again, for the however many times, you're tempted to beat yourself up saying, Does God really forgive me? Remember, it was by His amazing grace that all your sins, past, present, and future, have been forgiven. Grace saved us. Grace enables us right now. And grace is going to bring us home to the God of all grace. The Bible says to be sober, to be vigilant, because your adversary the devil is a roaring lion, walketh about seeking whom he may devour, whom resists steadfast in the faith 
knowing that the same afflictions are accomplished in your brethren that are in the world. But the God of all grace, who hath called us unto His eternal glory by Christ Jesus, after that ye have suffered a while, make you perfect, establish, strengthen, settle you. Paul said to the Galatian believers, stand fast in the liberty that you have in Christ. That liberty comes by the grace of God in your life. What an amazing truth, amen? Salvation is by grace, through faith, in Christ alone. Once we're saved, we're to continue to grow in the grace and knowledge of Jesus Christ. Don't give up an inch of your liberty in Christ. Amen? Amen, let's pray. Heavenly Father, thank You for Your Word tonight. And Lord, I pray that You'd cause us to remember that all we are are sinners saved by grace. Sometimes we've been saved a while. We've got our doctrine on straight. We can come with an attitude of, I know some things. I know the Bible. We've got good doctrine. It's sad that these others out there aren't as good as we are. Or we can major on some things and we can feel some self-righteousness, but we overlook all the other things in our life as if they're not as important. And the point is, we're nothing without the grace of God. It's all of God's grace, His enabling. And Lord, I pray that you would help us, Lord, to set self aside, lean hard on the Spirit of God, yield to Him as we continue on through chapter 5 and consider the product of the flesh, what it looks like, versus the product or the fruit of the Spirit, what that looks like. Lord, I pray that you'd again impress upon our hearts how needy we are of your grace. Lord, cause us to be humble before you and to recognize again that the only way we have any standing with God is because of God's grace and his love through Jesus Christ. I love you tonight. Thank you, Lord, for your goodness to us, your grace in our life. In Jesus' name, amen. <clears throat>